As we come now to think about this passage that Cathy read for us, let's pause and prepare our hearts in prayer. Let us pray. Father, we need your help. We need your Holy Spirit. Only you can give life to these ancient words. Only you can make application into our lives. So Lord, may you be at work in this day. We ask and pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Last Sunday morning, we began a new sermon series in the book of Esther. And whenever you come to this book, to this book of Esther, you are required to read the story behind the story, behind the story, behind the story. What on earth do I mean by that? Well, let me try and explain. The book of Esther tells us nothing of the big story. The big story that was hitting the world headlines at that time and about which they're still making movies today. The King of Persia, we met him last Sunday, Ahasuerus, or as he's better known and marginally easier to say, Xerxes I, was a young man in his 30s. He was bent on world domination, but the might of the Greek Empire stood in his way and so he led out his army of around a million soldiers and eventually he defeated King Leonidas and his mighty Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae. From there he and his armies advanced and they destroyed the city of Athens but then he lost a a crucial naval battle, the Battle of Salamis to the Greek fleet. And so he returned home with his pride significantly dented. That's the big story that our, our story is written in conjunction with. It's a meeting of global superpowers. And what we read in the book of Esther is happening around the time of these significant world events. Probably the book of Esther just begins as Ahasuerus returns from defeat in Greece, although no one is quite sure of the timing. And the story we're presented with, at least here in chapter one, is a a royal drama with a king and a queen, and we'll come to that in a moment. But of course, the book's called Esther. And we know that behind the story of uh, the king and the queen's relationship is the account of a young woman called Esther, who will find herself swept into all kinds of political intrigue in the courts, the royal courts of Susa. And this is a drama that will threaten the destruction of her people, of God's people, the Jews. But behind that story is the greatest story of all. The story of the cosmic struggle between the almighty creator God and the prince of the power of the world, Satan. And Satan is hell-bent on eliminating the one who had been promised back in Genesis 3.15. The one, we're told, who will ultimately crush his head. And Satan knows that if he can find a way to cause the Jews all to be killed, then he can stop the Messiah being born. And thus, the ancient prophecy will fail. And so this cosmic drama 
is repeated throughout the Bible. For example, we see it being played out in the actions of Pharaoh when he tried to have all the male children born to the Jews in Egypt thrown into the Nile. Or we have considered recently a further attempt to stop the Messiah through the wickedness of King Herod as he struck out killing the babies of Bethlehem. And we know that further along in this story, we'll meet a man called Haman. And he will attempt genocide again, hoping to wipe out all the Jews across Ahasuerus' great empire. So all this drama is unfolding before us. And as we learn and read together of Esther and all that unfolds, we must not miss this cosmic subplot that lies behind the story as we look at what's before us in these pages. Last Sunday, Trevor spoke to us of the excessively lavish and pretentious celebration hosted by Ahasuerus. And we see that the, the whole book of Esther is bracketed between two feasts. Feasting and fasting are important themes throughout the whole of the book. And the first feast that held and hosted by Ahasuerus was a once-only feast. The Feast of Chapter 1, where we see him, in a sense, drowning his sorrows at defeat. And the book ends in Chapter 9 with the annual feast that would become known as Purim, held celebrating a great victory for God's people. And here in our text, as this seemingly endless party of Chapter 1, that all, all that overindulgence is drawing to a close, Ahasuerus's guests, who have been privileged to see all the greatness of his kingdom on display, have yet to witness one final exhibit. They are to be entertained by gazing on the stunning beauty of Vashti, the queen, his trophy wife. And so she is duly summoned to appear before the king and his drunken guests, wearing her royal crown. And it is suggested by some that she was to wear very little else. Then we read in verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come. What? No one had ever said no to the king before. And the reaction of this spoilt and drunken ruler does not take us by surprise. We read, at this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. This petulant young man was seething because he had experienced a very public humiliation. An emergency cabinet meeting is to be held and we are allowed to sit in on their deliberations. And it rapidly becomes very clear that there is not much wisdom to be shared among Persia's wisest men. And these wise men are the same sort of magi who centuries later arrived gift-laden to worship Jesus. But it seems the seven that we read of here in our text were, were not that wise. And I'm doing my best to refrain from making any comments about any likeness to our own cabinet or executive members. Except to say that perhaps the Persians have an excuse. They were probably very drunk at the time. But these seven men are invited to deliberate on this delicate matter. And they're described 
in verse 14 as being those who saw the king's face. And we need to remember that because that element is going to become a very significant theme in this story as we progress. We need to understand that not everyone is readily welcomed into the king's presence. And for some, to come before the king uninvited is to bring the judgment of death down on their heads. Ahasuerus had a bodyguard of some 10,000 men who had the name the Immortals. So you can begin to understand that getting close to the king, being able to see his face, was not a simple matter. One of the seven counsellors, one of Ahasuerus' special advisors, Memukin realizes that Vashti is an influencer. Others will follow her lead. Hashtag not my king will soon be trending on Twitter. And Memukin, perhaps really selfishly, reasoned that if she can be dismissive of the king's command, he who is the mighty ruler of 127 provinces, what's going to happen in the homes of the ordinary men of the empire. And so these seven with their king arrive at a solution that is to make a law, verse 20, a law stating that all women give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Now I'm sure you know the story of Daniel and the lion's den. And it keeps emphasizing in that story that the law of the Medes and the Persians can never be undone. It can never be revoked. Which the Bible, both in the story of Daniel and here, goes to great lengths to make it very clear that it's a very stupid idea, a very foolish thing to do. You know, to, to make a foolish law and then combine the error, the error with the short-sighted regulation stating that it can never be, under any circumstances, changed. Psalm 19 and verse 7 reminds us that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The law of the Lord is perfect. And it is the law of the Lord alone that is perfect. And while many of the laws within our nation were once founded firmly on the law of God, we have witnessed, particularly over recent decades, how the law of God, who is good and gracious, is slowly but surely being sidelined and the laws of sinful men are now taking precedence. And while all human lawmaking is in some measure flawed, we, we know well that laws made in haste, as in our text, are, have the tendency to be particularly bad laws. And this account ends up really rather mocking the king for his decision. Uh, his lawmaking has the very opposite effect of its original intention in that now everyone throughout his vast empire knows that Queen Vashti dared to say no to her husband. His citizens in, in Chennai in India or in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia probably would never have heard of his humiliation until the news of this new legislation reached them. 
Now everybody all across these 127 provinces knew that mighty King Ahasuerus couldn't even make his wife obey him. This man who is intent on conquering the world doesn't even rule in his own home. And the truth is revealed that for all the king's splendor and majesty, he holds such limited power and control. So what then are we to make of this tale of an ancient king and a queen and their domestic dispute? What implications, what applications are there for our lives in Portadown 24 centuries or so later? Well, whenever you meet any king within the pages of scripture, you've always got to reach the same conclusion. And that is that there's got to be a better king. Even the very best of biblical kings, men like Josiah or Hezekiah, who lived well before God and honoured his commands, in the end of their lives, they, they, they did ill-advised things. They were very foolish. And we think particularly of David, the man after God's own heart who showed himself to be a man who was thoroughly flawed. And this is the lesson that as we look at the kings of the Bible, even if we look at our leaders today, those who rule over our nation, they will always leave us frustrated, as they must. They will always leave us longing for a better king. As I was saying to the boys and girls, this is what we want. This is what we need. And this is what God offers to us in Jesus. He is the one who is born to be the greater king. Let me look with you for a moment at, at just some of the contrasts that our story draws out for us. For we have seen here in these verses that Ahasuerus sat on his opulent throne and commanded people to come to him. But the greater king, King Jesus left his glorious throne and he came into this world. He came seeking people, inviting them into a living and loving relationship with him. We, we see in these, in these verses that Ahasuerus planned a lavish feast that would last for more than six months, but that would ultimately dull and deaden hearts and minds. But the greater king, King Jesus, has planned a sumptuous feast that will last for all eternity and that will endlessly bless and benefit all those who are privileged to partake of it. And we've seen that Ahasuerus commanded his queen to attend the feast that she might entertain the guests. But the greater king, King Jesus, will welcome his bride the one who comes eagerly and willingly to the bridal banquet. She appears adorned for her husband, clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. The book of Revelation pictures it like this. We, we read some of these verses at the start of the service. Revelation 19 verses 6 to 8. There we read. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters. And like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. 
for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Such is the gracious heart of the true and greater King. The one who explained the purpose of his coming into the world in Mark 10.45. That he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He comes not to compel people to come to him as, as Jesus so graciously said in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Come to me, he said. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is his gracious invitation. Why would anyone choose to miss out? Why would anyone disregard his compassion and his concern, refusing to accept this inv invitation? And the consequences would be, ultimately, like Vashti, never to be able to enter the presence of the king again. We all want a king. We all need a king. And we all have a king. There is someone, there is something that rules in your heart and in my heart. It ought always to be Jesus, the great and better king. Sadly, too often it's ourselves. We enthrone ourselves and, and want everything at our beck and call to meet our every whim. But may it be that we know, love and live for the good and greater king, King Jesus. May we worship him. May he rule in our hearts. May he direct our thoughts and our words, our actions in each and every day. So that all glory as it rightfully does, would go to him and we would experience the riches of life that he came to purchase for us through his redeeming love. Let's pray together. Father, may it be that we know that King Jesus is the one that we need to rule in our hearts. May we happily, eagerly give him that place, knowing his justice, his compassion, his love. May we recognise that all the frustrations we have with the political uh, representatives in our own nation only point us to one who is greater, one who rules with equity, with justice and with rightness. May we know that Jesus rules over heaven and earth and that he rules in us and that he's the one who guides and guards our steps in each and every day, helping us to walk in the way that pleases him and blesses us. We pray in his name. Amen.